And if you have a Bible, turn please to Hebrews chapter 4. In the church Bible, that's page 1203. And the larger print Bible is 1864. Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to read the first 13 verses of this chapter. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet, his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive. And active, sharper than any double edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. This is God's word. Recently, Time magazine interviewed some advice experts. You know, the kind of people who answer questions in magazines and on TV. Readers' questions, viewers' questions. And each of those advice experts was asked the same question. What questions and issues define our age? As you listen to people week by week, what is it we're concerned about? And here are the three of the top answers they gave. First, the issue of self-worth is a big concern. People want to know that they matter in some fundamental way. That's a lot of what social media trades on. The truth is, that can be a very hollow arrangement. In other words, looking for self-worth 
through social media is a pretty precarious thing. If you look there, your self-worth is just as likely to be crushed as it is to be strengthened. Here's a second defining issue for our age. Mediocrity. We have so much access to so many success stories that I think it becomes extremely difficult for an average person just to exist. Does that ring a bell? We are bombarded with the lives of the beautiful and the rich and the successful. We are fed so much of that normal life can begin to seem like a failure. Here's one more defining issue for our age. Purpose. People don't even know what they'd like if they could have it. There's a sense of being completely lost in life. There's a strong connection between those three concerns. In many ways today, we have more than people have ever had before. We have more access to education, to technology. We have a higher standard of living in most cases. We have more leisure time than people would have dreamed of in the past. And yet people who listen to us say the defining issues of our age are the scramble for self-worth, the fear of mediocrity, and a loss of purpose. A sense of being completely lost in life. Someone else says, many of us live lives of quiet desperation. We have unprecedented opportunities, but we live with a deep sense of mental and spiritual unease. We live in an age characterized by restlessness. And so what we need is rest. Not just for our bodies, but rest for our souls. And our passage this morning points us to the rest giver. We've noticed in previous weeks, Hebrews is a book all about Jesus. It's written to men and women who have begun to lose sight of what they have in Jesus. And as we come to chapter 4, the topic here is pretty obvious. The word rest occurs 10 times in these 13 verses. We're told here about the rest we need, the open door to rest, and the way in to rest. First of all, the rest we need. In order to make sense of chapter 4, we have to remember chapter 3. Chapter 3 started out comparing Jesus to Moses. Moses, we were told, was Israel's apostle. He was sent as God's messenger to Israel. He was to be their guide as they traveled out of the misery of slavery in Egypt all the way to Canaan. That was the destination God had promised them. The trouble was, chapter 3 reminded us, Israel rebelled against their God-given guide. They hardened their hearts to Moses' voice. And in doing so, they hardened their hearts to God. In chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews quoted a chunk 
from Psalm 95. He did that to remind his readers of Israel's sad history and to warn them, don't let your hearts get hard. We have a greater guide than Israel had. Israel had Moses. He was a servant of God. We have Jesus, the Son of God. Stay sensitive to his voice. Don't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That was chapter 3. The focus was on the danger of turning away. But now chapter 4 focuses on the prize, the rest God makes available to us. And we're immediately told that Israel's experience, again, gives a parallel to our experience. Verse 1, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. The background here is found in the book of Numbers. After the Israelites left Egypt, they headed for Canaan. Remember, God had promised to give them Canaan. And Moses, as they got closer, he sent 12 men to go in and explore. They were to go ahead of the Israelites and then bring back a report. And they did. They went and scouted out the country. And when they came back, they were unanimous in saying Canaan is a great place. It's lush. It's fruitful. It would be a wonderful place to settle. The twelve spies all agreed on that. But they were divided on something else. Ten of them said, as great as it is, it's not for us. The people who already live there are too strong for us. They're huge. Their cities are too well fortified. This place is not for us. But two of the spies thought differently. Joshua and Caleb said, yes, the people are strong. Yes, their cities look impregnable. But what is that to our God? Didn't he promise to give us this land? Isn't that what's important? Can't we trust him to keep his promise? Let's go. He will give it to us. What happened at that point? Well, the Israelites sided with the ten naysayers. That's what verse 2 is talking about. The people heard good news, in their case, good news about the land of Canaan. But the message they heard was of no value to them. Why? Because they didn't share the faith of those who obeyed. That's Joshua and Caleb. All Israel heard the good news, but only Joshua and Caleb trusted God's promise. And so only Joshua and Caleb went into Canaan. Everyone else from their generation died in the desert. They died outside of the rest God had promised them. The message is God's rest comes to those who trust God's promise. God's rest comes to those who trust God's promise. 
That seems to be clear enough from verses 1 and 2. But now our passage takes a surprising turn. It feels like a leap into something totally different in verse 3. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. What has that got to do with Joshua and Caleb and Canaan? Well, these verses are here to show us what God's rest really means. The writer is saying, yes, the Israelites had been promised a land. In a certain sense, we could call that God's rest. But actually, God offers something much greater. More than just green fields and quiet streams. God invites his people to enter into his own rest. That's the point of verses 3 and 4. They take us right the way back to creation. The account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 2 says... God rested from all his work. Why? Because he was tired? No, he rested because he was satisfied. He was pleased. He was able to look at all he'd done and say, it's good. It is as I intended it to be. God's rest is a deep, satisfied peace. We see it again in the very last book of the Bible. Revelation 4 records John's vision of God's throne room. And in front of his throne, John says, was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In other words, it's perfectly still. There's not a ripple. Why is that significant? It's significant because elsewhere in Scripture, the sea is a place of chaos and disorder. It churns and it foams. It's unpredictable and it's unsettling. You never know what the sea is going to do. In the ancient world, that really was people's experience of the sea. It was dangerous and it was uncontrollable. And so it came to symbolize all that is uncontrollable in this world. But when John is shown a vision of God's throne, he sees that same sea from God's perspective. And it is as still as a piece of glass. The point is, God does not live in a life of unease. He is not restless and desperate. And it's not because God is blissfully ignorant. He knows what's going on in his world. He's intimately involved in his world. He cares deeply about it. But from the time of creation, God has been at rest. 
Because what looks like chaos to us is not chaos to him. This world is not like a churning sea to God. God is at peace because God is in control. And the writer of Hebrews wants you and I to see that is the rest we need. No matter how hard you and I try, we cannot control our circumstances. We cannot still the churning waves of life. But when we trust the God who is in control, we begin to share in his rest. And so here we're talking about a deep rest, a profound peace at the center of our being. It's a rest that comes not because we trust ourselves, as if we could always get things right and put things right. This rest comes because we trust God to get things right. And yes, we need other kinds of rest too. We need days off. We need holidays. But by itself, that kind of physical rest is not going to cure our quiet desperation. It's not going to bring peace to our restless souls. Only the peace of God can quieten those murmurs that we have in our hearts sometimes. You're not good enough. You're missing something. You don't really matter. You need to prove yourself. Try harder. Try harder. And lots of religious people hear this whisper in their hearts. God will never accept you. Look what you've done. You're kidding yourself. Why would God bother with you? No amount of sleep is going to quieten those whispers. No amount of holidays in the sun will give us rest from that weariness of never feeling we're good enough or significant enough. We need the rest of God. The rest he has enjoyed since the beginning of time. And here's what we could never have dared to hope. Our passage tells us there is an open door to God's rest. Look at verse 6. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. The way to make sense of these verses is to remember what we've just seen. The land of Canaan was never the end point of God's promise. 
We've seen what God was ultimately inviting people to was to join him in his own rest. That deep, satisfied peace. Peace that comes from knowing God does all things well. And to show us that's the ultimate rest, the writer mentions several previous stages of rest. Here's how he sets it out. The Exodus generation did not go into Canaan because of their disobedience. They sided with the ten spies who said it's impossible. Those people wouldn't trust God's promise and they had no rest. They died in the desert. But Joshua did lead the next generation into Canaan. He became leader after Moses died. The Old Testament book of Joshua records the conquest of Canaan. And near the end of the book, Joshua gathers the Israelites together and he says to them, God has given you rest, as he promised. And at a certain level, that was true. The Israelites were not wandering anymore. They had a physical place of their own. They trusted God's promise and they entered into rest. But that was not the ultimate rest of God. That's why verse 8 says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. When did God speak about that? Well, he did it hundreds of years after Joshua, through David. David took Israel's rest a stage further. He established a solid kingdom in the promised land. And he did it so successfully that 2 Samuel tells us God gave David rest from all his enemies. But that wasn't the ultimate rest of God. How do we know that? Because of Psalm 95. It's the main reference point of chapters 3 and 4. That's where most of the quotations in these chapters come from. Psalm 95 comes from David's era, when Israel had rest from their enemies. But it points even further ahead. It points to a rest that has not been achieved. It's still in the future. David couldn't lead God's people into the full riches of God's rest. Joshua couldn't do it either. Only God's Son could do it. And this book has already told us Jesus has done what was needed. He came to be the pioneer of our salvation. And he did what he came to do. He blazed a trail right through death for us. He broke the power of the one who holds the power of death. And today, the door to God's rest is open. It's not a thing of the past. It hasn't been and gone in Israel's history. We can experience God's rest today in the midst of a restless world. We can experience profound peace in our souls. Not because we've gained control of our situation, but because God is in control and we belong to him. We can begin that experience today 
And we can look forward to a perfect experience of rest. Israel's history gave us a little sense of what's still to come. For a short time, Israel lived as God's people in God's place under God's rule. And the Bible tells us that was a little glimpse of what will one day become a perfect, eternal reality. God's future place won't be a little corner of the Middle East. The New Testament says it will be a renewed heaven and earth. That's where God's people will live under his rule, experiencing the fullness of his rest. And it will not be a rest of sleep. It will be a rest of celebration. Verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Why does verse 9 talk about a Sabbath rest? It's underlining what kind of rest this is. It's not just physical rest. The Old Testament Sabbath was a festival time. It was a celebration of God and his goodness. And that's what we are invited into. And it comes to us as a gift from God. Verse 10 says, anyone who enters God's rest, rests from their works. When you and I find our rest in God, we rest from the miserable work of trying to chisel out some kind of purpose for ourselves. Trying to manufacture some self-worth in our hearts. Trying to fight the nagging whisper that our lives just aren't worth that much. In the face of all that, God says, the door to my rest is open. Come and celebrate my goodness and my worthiness. Come and find your true dignity and worth in serving me. Being my representative in this world. Come and discover that you matter to your maker. Come and find your true purpose in living for my glory. Come to me, God says, and you will find your place. The door is open. And so what is the way into this rest? Verses 11 to 13 tell us. But at first, these last verses don't seem to fit. They don't seem to fit because haven't we already been shown the way into God's rest? It's to take him at his word, to believe his promise. Isn't that what verse 3 said? We who have believed enter that rest. We need to put our faith in God's promise. And so what are verses 11 to 13 talking about? Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. That's talking about the Exodus generation. For the word of God is alive and active, 
sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give a kind. These verses show us the way into God's rest. It's to let God's word do its work in us. The Exodus generation heard God's word. It came to them with a flourish. It was accompanied by fireworks, thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai. God's word came to them, it passed through their ears, but it was of no value to them. Why? Because they didn't let it do its work. Some of you might remember an old film called The Bodyguard. I haven't seen it in a long, long time, but I have one vivid memory from that film. There's a scene with a samurai sword. And to prove how sharp the sword is, the lady takes a silk scarf and she lets it fall slowly onto the upturned blade of that sword. As the scarf touches the blade, the silk divides into two pieces and it falls to the ground. Now, I don't know if you can actually do that with a samurai sword. But I do know some blades are so sharp they can pierce you right to the heart. And here we are told God's word is like that. God's word is his voice as it comes to us in the Bible. And you and I can find ways to ignore his word. We can duck it. We can turn away from it. We can even do that while we're sitting here listening to it. But if you and I will face the blade of God's word, if we will listen to his voice humbly and carefully, then it will open us right up. It will expose the depths of our hearts. The things that really drive us. The things we truly value. The things that we look to to save us. The things that we grasp after, looking desperately for worth and purpose. You and I might not even be aware of some of the things that are going on in our hearts. But God's word is able to cut deep and expose it to us. And as you and I begin to see ourselves, we realize God sees it all too. Our hearts are completely laid bare to him. We can't hide a thing. Maybe you're wondering, this is supposed to be a good thing? Yes. Because unless we see ourselves as we are, unless we see ourselves as God sees us, We'll never let go of those false hopes. 
We'll never turn away from those false saviors that we're looking to. The illusion of gaining control over our lives. The illusion that a career can give us worth and satisfy us. Or money, or popularity, or praise. One writer compares this process to visiting a doctor. If you have a choice between letting the doctor examine you right away, uncomfortable though it may be, and waiting until he or she can do a post-mortem on you after it's too late, it is wise to go for the first. And it is wise to let God's word open us up today so that we can see the depths of our need so we can see the false hopes we're clinging to and then while there's still time we can turn to God for healing and rest so make every effort to get to grips with the Bible or rather let it get to grips with you Let it pierce you and uncover you. And you will find it does something else as well. It leads you to the rest giver. It's no accident that Israel was led into Canaan by a man called Joshua. The Greek form of that name is Jesus. The book of Hebrews and the New Testament as a whole presents us with another Greater Joshua. Jesus Christ said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus died to open the door to God's rest. He rose from the dead to wait for you in God's rest. So come to him. Come agreeing with all that God's word shows you about yourself. Those dark corners of your heart. The empty promises you've been depending on. Acknowledge all of it to him. Put your faith in him and he will forgive you. He'll give you purpose. You can begin to experience the peace of God. You can look forward to an eternity of perfect peace. Maybe you are a Christian. You know all this. But still, you find you have begun to be restless again. You find yourself filled with unease and you don't know why it is. If that's you, then put yourself back under the sword of God's word. Let it open you up again. Let it show you what's going on in your heart and soul. God's word cuts, but it cuts in order to heal. It opens us up so we can see all over again our need for Jesus. So we can come back to him again 
and find rest. What we're called to do is respond to God's word. We need to do that privately and individually. But we're going to do it now together. We're going to respond with a song that is really a prayer. Asking God to reign in us. To captivate our hearts. And then we'll do together what God's people do when they find rest in him. They praise him and they celebrate his goodness. So let's sing as a prayer, reign in me.